This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Futurefile, your weekly podcast exploring the technology that changes the way we live, work, and play. I'm your host, Jeff Parsons, the Mirror's tech and science editor, and joining me this week, as ever, is my co-host, Shivali Best, our assistant science and tech editor. Hello, hi. And we also have a special guest joining us. Um, so I'd like to say a welcome to our YouTube veteran, Miles Dyer, who um, has been on YouTube for over a decade now and has come and joined us in the studio. Thank you so much for having me. Great, um, thanks a lot for joining us. Um, as you might have gathered, with Miles here, we're going to be talking about YouTube, uh, both in terms of the platform itself, how it's blown up, how it's impacted our society, and also on a, on a slightly smaller and more individual level, how you yourself can get into YouTube. Maybe you've been thinking about starting a channel, maybe you just want to find a more constructive way of using it. That's kind of what we're going to tackle um, today. Now, in terms of background, obviously, I would assume you're aware of YouTube, but it does have, it has over a billion users. Um, YouTube says uh, almost one third of all people on the internet use it and every day that those people are watching billions of hours of video they're just generating billions and billions of views and you've got content being uploaded all the time. Now YouTube is not without its controversies um, some of which have hit the headlines earlier this this year. We'll get onto that in a little bit but first I think it's probably right that we just learn a little bit more about Miles, what his experience of YouTube has been and how he kind of got involved with it. So Miles, I'm just going to turn it over to you if you want to just kind of give us a, a kind of a rough introduction about where you've come from and, and how you got started with it. Sure. So um, I've been a video blogger since the end of 2006, early 2007. And uh, I started off because I was um, just about to go to university. I was on my gap year and uh, I was living with my parents at the time. And there was this uh, news story on BBC News about um, this elderly gentleman called Geriatric 1927. And he was this 80 year old man who'd just done a video blog. And he really went against the stereotype of like elderly people being technophobes. Um, and it had some really adorable things in it, like um, when he wanted the music to come in, he would hold up the radio to the camera and then put <laughs> oh, it back down again. Oh, it was amazing. So uh, and it had millions and millions of views. And so I thought, I'll check out this this platform. And so I went on YouTube. And uh, it wasn't just the video itself that mesmerized me. It was the fact that there was a functionality that isn't on it, unfortunately, anymore called video responses. And underneath it, you had hundreds of people that had also introduced themselves in response to his video and I realized that this wasn't just a, a website where people could upload there was this community mm. and so I uploaded a video in which um, I'd written a film script and I sort of read an extract from like the first couple of pages and it may have had like 20 views and a couple of comments and people said I like what you have to say yeah and uh, so I, I took it from there and basically over the last 11 years I've sort of experimented with the platform and it's become quite a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense of like I look at politics and I do some videos around that. Um, YouTube had a scheme called Ask the PM where you could pose a question to the Prime Minister then, uh, Gordon Brown, and he did a video response to me which was incredibly surreal. 
Um, I got involved in charity and I used to host every year this 24-hour non-stop live show called Stick Aid to raise money for UNICEF and mm. it started off in my university dorm on a laptop and then every year I would get more and more of my YouTube friends from the community involved and it would grow to the point that it was in a TV studio in 2011. Millions of people watched it, traditional talent um, from TV like Stephen Fry and Jonathan Ross would watch it and donate yeah. um, and it just really made me realize the power of this platform um, and so I've never been someone who's necessarily been the most viewed on YouTube I mean mm. I have had millions of views but it's been over a long period of time but I've always been about like w what can the platform do to support people and communities a and therefore I've sort of related to a lot of people because I don't seem so out of reach because right. I've got more moderate viewership compared so to what, a lot. What sort of what are your numbers? What, uh, how many? So at the moment, I mean, I, I've, I've been, had a break for a few years, but I mean, my videos now will be um, they might do one or two thousand views in the initial couple of days. But I mean, in the first five to six years, I did about nine, ten million views. I mean, at one point, I had wow. more subscribers than Channel Four News in the early days, wow. um, and the BBC, um, of course these media organisations have a bit more infrastructure than I do as yeah. someone, so eventually they do overtake um, but because I have been involved for 11 years, um, it's meant I've sort of built this brand around um, well, of integrity, which is obviously important to brands, mm. but um, I may not be the most well known YouTuber, but I am well respected, and, and so when I go to these big YouTube events that are hosted around the world um, you know, all the people that go there who view YouTube videos may not recognise me uh, as much right. as they may have once, um, but the people that are content creators know me, and that's a really nice thing to sort of be involved in that way. Yeah, you kind of touched on some of the things you make videos about, so there's politics and mental health. Is there a certain genre that you see has a massive spike in views, or is it kind of level across different ones? It, it, I mean, it will be always around popular culture, so if you're doing things on um, serious topics, if you can tie it in with, you know, the, the, the buzz news story of the day. Um, when I started getting back into YouTube again a couple of years ago, after a bit of a break um, due to health reasons, I uh, did a lot around the American elections mm. um, and uh, specifically around the rise of Bernie Sanders, who was running for the Democratic nomination against Hillary Clinton, um, because I thought he was an absolutely fascinating individual and because there was so much buzz for him, um, especially among young people. Um, that brought on this huge wave of audience and um, in previous elections when I'd commented um, I'd often hear from uh, American viewers why is this guy from Britain getting involved in yeah. our politics <laughs> whereas this year it was more like wow this guy from a different country has a real interest this must be important and it was a really interesting dynamic which I think is one of many things that's changed over the years as people become more globally conscious and, and sort of for me I've always regarded YouTube and, and video generally as this sort of empathy machine. Mm. And it's why I've been a real hippie all this time because I see it is changing the world and it is um, bringing people together and it's making the world seem like an increasingly small place. Yeah, it has, uh, I mean, it's kind of become, you know, back, go back 10, 15 years when, you know, loading video on a, on a internet connection on a PC would take a bit of time. Now, we'll, you know, you can just get it on your phone while you're waiting for the bus. I mean, that's that kind of quick and instant. Yeah that it sort of just democratised the whole thing. Plus, um, I'm sure it's quite easy to kind of upload it. If you've got a, a Gmail account, you have a YouTube account, is that right? Uh, yeah, it would be bound, I think, on Google, yeah. So it's, it's very, very easy, kind of low barrier to entry to yes. get into it. Um, but yeah, so it's... It, I, I, what what are the main changes that you, you've seen it now, like, given that it's over these last sort of 10 years that you've been involved with it? I mean, yeah. you mentioned there the sort of 
the political aspect or talking about current affairs, you know, which has come a long way from kind of when it started and you had kind of joke videos coming up and maybe a lot of people maybe sort of thought YouTube was a bit like that, but it's it's not. I was saying before we came on air that I kind of delved into it a little bit more last year and just found all these kind of really interesting creators that sort of I maybe didn't know about before. Um, so, yeah, just just kind of give me a feeling then of what you think the big changes have been. Sure. Well, as you touched upon, I think the cliche that was always used for online video over the years was, uh, you know, it's just for dogs on skateboards. And I remember <laughs> that was used for many, many years, and it was very frustrating. But then, you know, people that sort of live within the community and, you know, engage with weekly videos um, would have a different experience from people that just use it on a lunch break and are watching videos that have been shared casually. Uh, and that's not to say that, you know, popular culture and those sort of viral videos aren't an important part of the platform. I, I definitely see it as sort of two tiers. But in terms of like how it's evolved over the 11 years, I think due to the increase of consumers, um, which has meant there's a diversification of demand for different types of videos, um, there's also a diversification in, in the types of content that's made. And sort of, for me, I think this goes to a broader point about how the world is changing in media, which is, um, to give it a sort of a quick metaphor, traditionally I think celebrity and popular culture has always been one hierarchy, one pyramid structure, where at the top you have like the A-list celebrities, and so for anyone that's looking up that pyramid to see like what is popular culture and what is it to be well known in the world it's like one connecting point it's like those are the group of people and that was how YouTube was when I first joined I, I, there were probably like a hundred video bloggers that were mainstream and we all knew each other mainly from America and obviously now there are thousands of YouTube channels with millions of subscribers that I've never heard of before and that's just mind blowing because I remember when Smosh was the first YouTube channel to hit a million subscribers and it was such a big deal and now it's it's quite average um, yeah. uh, although proportionately compared to the rest of the community it's, it's still quite rare um, whereas now I think it's decentralised like technology is doing with many different aspects of life and what we're seeing now is we don't have just one pyramid of hierarchy for celebrity and popular culture we have a magnitude of pyramids we have pyramids for sport uh, and different types of sport and all these different niche uh, interests because now you could be the only person in your town or community that has an interest in a certain thing but now you can connect online with millions of people even just thousands of people around the world that believe the same thing you do um, and so that can be positive in the sense of uniting people over interests and um, organising around political issues but there are negative aspects as well because it means people that have um, uh, beliefs that we think have should have long gone under they're now sort of you know reorganizing and thinking you know we are the silent majority uh, minority or majority mm. and, and we have a voice now and I think that is always going to be the trade-off um, and, and so for me the biggest change these last 10 years has been uh, the decentralization of, of traditional celebrity and it's why I think celebrity as we know it today will die in the next 10 20 years we're going to be more of a network of just tuning into influencers that matter to yeah. us you find the things that, that, that appeal to you and that's where you kind of you know, we've only got so much time to, to watch stuff and listen to stuff. Like, so you're going to find the stuff that's that you're it. most engaging yeah. with. Because it's free to watch. Do. That's yeah. not your choice anymore of what can I afford. It's what do I have time for? And yeah. now people will spend more time. And when she found something you really are interested in, you'll stick with it. You won't just watch something because it's the popular thing. Yeah, of course. And because everything, you can watch it when you want now, can't you? Yeah. Uh, how often do you sit down at 6 o'clock in the evening and watch something because that's when it's on? You know, yeah. you go, no, yeah. I'm going to watch it's it. Literally it's literally on demand. Yes. Yeah, when, yeah. It's, when, it's, when it appeals to me. Um, I think people... That w 
a lot a lot of times with YouTube as well, it kind of comes back to to the money as well. That's a popular question that gets asked, and we were saying before we kind of came on air that um, even eight years later, you know, people still asking you, oh, "Can I make money on it? How does that work?" So, can you give us like a little bit of a breakdown on on that question? Sure. You know, how can you make money on YouTube? Yeah. So tying into what we were just saying about sort of diversifying celebrity. Yeah, I mean, so. I mean, the most basic way you make money on YouTube is for every time you make a view, you have this inventory slot which sits alongside your video or beforehand. So when you see those adverts that pop up before your video is watched and mm -hmm. it's skippable, that'd be true view or a pre-roll ad. Um, so every time you watch a video and that pops up, uh, Google will get a percentage of that and then a percentage of that will also go to the content creator and that's sort of a, a revenue share. Mm. Um, of course, because we should mention actually that Google owns YouTube. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Might, not, not everyone might be aware of that, but they do. Yeah, yeah so um, they do that revenue share. Other ways is they can do sponsorship deals where companies can actually either pay the content creator who has an audience with a certain demographic, um, you know, we want you to promote this product or do this themed uh, video around our brand. Mm. Um, and again, there'll be a revenue share with that if you're using the platform. Um, or they might even just pay to take over a channel and just do a pre-roll on it, in which right. case it'll be a bit more expensive um, to do it. So that tends to be the the most common way of making money. However, we are seeing um, over the last, I think, few years at least, this real change. Some people call it the adpocalypse, the sense that um, people are making less and less money through um, running ads on their channels. But I think this was an inevitability, and it's actually not just about YouTube, it's about mm. online cult culture uh, or online content as a whole, because more and more people are making videos. I'm, I'm just curious to know as well, um, if you have built an audience, let's say you've built an audience on the tenant of honesty, you know, I'm going to talk to you about this subject or my life or whatever, mm. and then you start to go, oh, by the way, here's a product that I've been paid to show you. Does that get a backlash? Do you get... It, it would do, would yeah. It, could do, cause, you now have or, to or, say if it's sponsored though, don't you? You yeah. do. Yeah. But I, thought, I think that um, especially individual YouTubers who have like this affinity with their audience uh, and vice versa, they feel a responsibility that anything I promote is going to have an influence and that they will, on the most part, you know, take that responsibility and they won't do something that's out of the blue and seems like a misfit hmm. uh, because if it does, the audience will know it. They're not going to and, buy into and, it, yeah. And I've always regarded integrity as sort of this candle. Like, once it goes out, it's it's really difficult to sort of put back up again. And like and so the... And so the the more years you make <laughs> video content, the scarier it can become because you could... You could lose it like that, yeah. couldn't you, if you do one wrong move? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that does bring us on to, um, quite nicely, the, the controversies that, that, that YouTubers sometimes kind of fall and foul of. Um, one of which, and, and I suppose the most fresh in people's minds, will be the Logan Paul um, episode from... from January, um, which was where Logan Paul, a very successful uh, US video blogger, um, filmed a video uh, apparently showing a suicide victim in Japan and it appeared that he was mocking it and there was a huge backlash. Um, YouTube actually responded as a, for, as a corporate entity. Um, their response was, and I quote, it's taken us a long time to respond, but we've been listening to everything you've been saying. We know that the actions of one creator can affect the entire community, so we'll have more to share soon on steps we're taking to ensure a video like this is never circulated again. And I think that's interesting because, as you were saying, you've grown a community, you're, you know, you've never maybe had any formal training, and all of a sudden about the law, but you are, you know, a huge influencer, you're a person of influence. Um, and there can be, as happened with Logan Paul, you know, you can make a misstep. So, 
who's it's a it's a it's a thorny issue to get into, but I'm very interested to get your take on what happened, like what your thoughts on it are, mm. how that we could you know avoid this happening. Whose fault is it? Sure. So what you know, what do you think about it? Well, for me, it's these things don't come out of a vacuum. Like Logan Paul didn't just wasn't this spawn of evil that just decided to do something really abhorrent and uh, you know thought he could get away with it. I think he genuinely was shocked by the backlash, and it really made him rethink what he does. Because he was a guy that just made videos that would get clicks, and you know, you go for outrage, you do whatever you can that's going to make people go, "Oh wow, that's quite surreal." And you only had to look at the video's thumbnail and, and title; it was all in capital letters, and I think unfortunately had the um, the body on the thumbnail hmm. um, because they thought that's provocative. Um, and you know, I think that when we look in the media, there are you know newspapers that sometimes do questionable front page covers and. It's a question of taste, but then there's also a general consensus of what is definitely over the line, and he, he clearly overstepped it. Um, but for me, it's like, you know, YouTube, when we talk about how many billions of views, you know, and people are engaged with it, and how many people are making content, this is just one guy. And it's not to say that he's the only guy, mm. but we have to look at it in perspective and, and look at what was the backlash. And the thing was, a lot of the mainstream YouTube community spoke out against it and I think that should be also acknowledged that um, people didn't feel this represented what most people find is acceptable um, and YouTube's response I think shows a willingness to change and you know YouTube can be criticised lots for you know they took too long to take it down for example or um, how was this allowed to happen in the first place how did the algorithm allow it to mm. be trending but YouTube can't be a perfect platform with so many variables online, it takes time to work it out. And um, like with Logan Paul's apology, for me, it's I, I think an apology is good. Uh, and he, he t asks his followers, many who are young kids who are trying to defend him, he says, don't defend me. Mm. His, his actions are going to be what's most important. And I think it's the same for YouTube. Uh, YouTube can put out a statement, which I think is good. But the actions of what they do next to improve the platform will be evidence of it. And... Um, I mean, a lot of my videos now around education, it's around nuance and you know empathy, which I think all plays into this. Um, but a video I once did uh, was the notion of explanation isn't the same as justification. And so you can explain why Logan Paul did it, as I've done, which mm. is that he was always trying to get the next biggest hit. And some people say, oh, so that makes it all right then. No, it doesn't make it all right. But it's going back to my point is that didn't come out of a vacuum. He didn't just one day go from nothing to do this outrageous thing he was always looking for that next big hit and the algorithm kept serving him more and more and then, and then eventually you have to go whoa 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 it's gone one step too far right. how do we prevent this from happening again and it's, it's all about feedback it's what takes what, something what this, can YouTube do about that kind of thing though? they've got filters on don't they and things like I think it's videos with if you swear in it you get demonetized. but what will they have to then sit and have a process where they review every single video to check its content well I, I know they've hired lots of people to review content manually I believe I, I don't know the, the inner workings of it I mean it goes to a much deeper question with YouTube and I, I couldn't go into it in too much detail just because I don't understand it enough and in terms of the legal side but there's this big debate with online companies whether it's Facebook or YouTube about what is YouTube is it a publisher or is it a platform yeah and YouTube will always say we're a platform yeah. Um, I know when I first joined YouTube another difference was they had a front page editorial and if you got featured on that front page you made it you got millions That's of views right. and you yeah, were well on your way and they, and they don't do that anymore and I think it's because they were more about it's the algorithm because if you have the algorithm 
and I think they regard it as kind of this like black box that you know the engineers work on know what not a lot of people know about it because otherwise there could be favoritism in that and that kind of plays into the thing of it being a platform not a publisher yeah. and so um, I know that um, when t- uh, Twitter was caught in controversy about you know um, abuse given to I think MPs and they were calling commissions to talk about it and they were saying last time you were in Twitter uh, we asked you to take down these tweets and you haven't mm-hmm. uh, why not and they're like we're going to look into it and I think it's to that same issue of the fact that they're a platform and not a publisher yeah. Yeah. that they have to tweak the algorithm to take care of it they can't have someone who and, and of course there will be people that have to interject when there are anomalies like yeah. with Logan Paul and stuff but again I think ultimately the goal of YouTube and all these um big media organisations, digital media organisations, is how do we optimise the algorithm, as you say, to mm. better serve and stop this stuff happening again, as opposed to having someone come in and manually do it, because that opens an, a whole other kettle of fish. And have, have you ever experienced anything like that, like a backlash from people where you've, you sort of put something up and, and, and people uh, have reacted negatively to it? or, or something Yeah. Like, that? like from, from, from the side of the creator, I mean, how... how yeah, sure. Uh, I, like I, I, don't, I don't answer it in two parts. So directly, I would say I, I once did a video, like oh, six, seven years ago. Sorry which, to just drug up. Like, no, 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 no. It's cool. It's <laughs> old, cool. Old no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, cool. <laughs> it was, um, it was a video called censorship, and it was satire, uh, and I think having dry British humour, uh, especially in the early days of YouTube. Uh, <laughs> It didn't go on too well, especially with my American audience. And it was where I was constantly swearing, but I was bleeping everything. So it was all this censorship happening, and I was saying why censorship was brilliant. Yeah. And at the end, I say, um, so what do you guys think about censorship? Actually, don't tell me. I don't give up what you think. Yeah. And I blocked comments, and no one could comment. So I'd rolled up all this emotion with the audience and, and about why censorship was good, and they wanted to say why censorship was bad, and they couldn't comment. I lost thousands of subscribers overnight, and I realized, And then so I did a follow-up satirical piece on irony. Uh, and I talked about how censorship came from the HMS sensor, which was a ship that had so much graffiti on it. They put a massive sensor black mark over it, and again, just more satire. Which think it went better, but it was still bad. But the other part I would answer in terms of backlash was, um, I did a video when I first started. I used to do a lot of comedy sketches and stuff like that when I was at uni, and a lot of it was rubbish. Um, and one particular one I did was I used to do a lot of parodies of other people in the community. And there was a, a really famous YouTuber who was a fashion guru called William Sled, um, who was incredibly camp um, as a vlogger. And um, so there was a lot of characteristics which were I thought were quite funny to mimic. And so I did a parody of him, as I did with many others. And then I sent him the link afterwards, hoping he'd see it. Didn't hear back. And then I went into one of his live streams and I said, hey, I just wanted to find out if you'd seen it. And he said, yeah, I did see it. I was absolutely mortified. And straight away, oh. I felt so terrible. Oh, I deleted man. the video, um, and, and that was the end of it. And I, you know, I apologised and stuff like that. But I realised if I'd done that now, I'm not saying at my age as a 31 year old. I mean, back then as an 18, 19 year old at uni, if I was that mm. now, that could have been online, and other people would have uploaded it. I mean, there's every chance it could surface one day because someone else has downloaded it at some point, yeah. and it'd be used to condemn the person I am now. And so, again, going back to this thing about empathy and, and nuance, I do a lot of videos around the idea of. You know, you look at a video as a snapshot in time, but we all look at videos now and think that's what they are in the present. You know, when we hear allegations of people in the past, not saying they shouldn't be 
brought up and dealt mm. with, but we need to think in a context of it's very easy to think that a good apple can turn bad, but can a bad apple turn good? And actually humans are much more complicated than apples and they can evolve. And uh, so I look back at stuff like that with horror, but I'm very open with the fact that, you know, I've made really bad mistakes in my life, but I've also gone on a journey away from it. And uh, I think, as I say, you know, I could make an apology. I don't, I made an apology to him because mm. he was the only one who really knew about the video back then and he was the only one that I thought it mattered to. Um, but it's about actions and not to be yeah. flippant about it, yeah. I've not made any homophobic videos since <laughs> like in 11 years. So I'd say that's uh, that would show some sign that I, I've learned. Um, but yeah, that'd be one example. So pulling pulling all the stuff we've sort of talked about from um, the, the making money thing we talked about earlier to, to the, the, the controversies and the, and the things you've just talked about like if you could sort of distill it down into some sort of takeaway tips some actually advice that people who maybe aren't on YouTube but are thinking of getting into it mm. or people that want to just try and get a bit more use out of it than just you know finding a music video to listen to you know on the lunch break or whatever so what what was what would be the kind of the t- if if me and Shivali want to start a YouTube video like what, and you should and um, we should let's yeah, face it we should <laughs> Jeff really wants to I, I do I really do, do I've been saying for for weeks now that I was like oh, I said I'm, this this podcast is going to make him even more want to I know <laughs> I think I said it on last week's show actually that I was like was it last week's show no it was about oh, it was a couple space. of weeks ago yeah. yeah. And I'll happily, and I said, I'll happily help and you I get said, oh, we should, we should start, we should start a podcast. But you've got for now, yeah. So, so what's the best way to kind of go about to getting started on it? Um, well, I, I think like just running a podcast generally. I mean, you'd be in good stead with it. Is it's about having consistency. Like, if you can do one video a week, um, you're in a really good place because not everyone who goes on YouTube is a, is a, has an account and therefore doesn't subscribe and actually even people with accounts don't always subscribe some of the mm. YouTube channels I watch most I'm not subscribed to it's just it's a part of my daily or weekly routine so I know to keep going back there um, and then of course it feeds it in the algorithm but I'd also say for people that just want to do video blogging and that look at your favorite content creators and and although video responses which I'm still annoyed with YouTube about isn't a feature anymore <laughs> and I still hope one day they'll bring it back um, you know, you can still do a video response in the sense of if someone's bringing up an issue and you like what they've said or, or you think it's an interesting topic, do your own version. And it's just a good way of getting practice because as you do that, you start learning about yourself and realizing what matters to you, what interests me in terms of making video content. Because video is like the most encompassing form of creativity in the sense of wherever you're a musician, a philosopher, an artist, a writer, mm. you can use any of these elements in any combination in video form. And I think it's why it's the ultimate platform for um, creativity. Um, but unfortunately, when you have that much choice in an online world so big, you have the paralysis of choice. And that can be really daunting. And even I face that 11 years down the line that yeah. I'll have all these different ideas and I'm like, what do I do this week? And sometimes I don't do anything at all because I'm just completely frozen by it. And so getting into those habits and rhythms isn't just good for you as a creator um, because then you have some fixed variables. Like if you're uploading seven o'clock every Thursday evening, which is what I try and do. <laughs> I should cough really loud now. Um, that, that Then you know, okay, so I've got that right. And now I can judge other variables of, you know, like the topic or, you know, the way the video was edited to see what, what is successful because ultimately when you make videos, you know, um, it's the message versus the messenger. It's the sense of you want to put yourself out there as a brand, as an authority, um, as a voice people want to listen to or someone they want to watch. But it's also about getting your message out there. And so it's getting the balance and act between having something that's 
marketable, though it doesn't necessarily have to be used in such corporate terms, but that's you know going to be shared and, and consumed and people are going to be enthusiastic about, but it's also going to deliver the things mm. that you care about most. And if you can get that balance right, you'll be very happy as a content creator. Yeah, I think so. I think to start out with, you almost don't think about trying to amass views. Just do something that you're interested in. Yeah. If you're interested in it, other people, there will be other people out there that are interested in it. And you don't need like all the gear, do you? You could do it with a phone. Because all the phones have got good enough cameras on them now, you know, even sort of mid-range phones, mm-hmm. that you can, you know, you don't need a, a, a tripod or a mic or anything like that. You just set it up in a room and, and talk to it and, and just start that way. And this is why video bloggers have had the advantage over a lot of big media organisations because of the fact that when they start off, they only need a webcam that can cost 20 £30 or mm. use their phone and they get maybe 10, 20 views. And as that viewership builds, they invest in more and more. Whereas on the flip side, you have all these massive media organizations that have all this content and all these different verticals of you know, tech, sport, and that. And then if they have like one YouTube channel, they're like, well, what do we do in video form? And that can be, if you're doing it on a new platform, like you're going on YouTube for the first time, um, you need to build an audience and if you're building an audience you can't flood them with all this different content that you were doing in um, you know written form Yeah. you need to actually start with one thing and build it out and that kind of goes at odds with the fact that you have all this infrastructure whereas as I say like video bloggers they start small with a small audience and grow accordingly in sync and, and that's what's made it really interesting the last 10 years of how some people out of nowhere from their bedrooms, not to use that as a mm. cliche, have actually become the stars of big media organisations, whereas big media organisations that were traditionally successful are now struggling to work out where they fit in this platform where there is a saturation of content and how do you have that competitive edge in a, a globalised yeah. world. It's kind of the opposite of um, all the gear, no idea. It's like all right. the idea, <laughs> no gear. Right, yeah, 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 that's really interesting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do. I mean, I do think sort of just to sort of wrap it up. I, I think this idea of, you know, YouTube. It, it, it's all too easy to to put the cliches out there of you know it's like cats on skis or whatever. But it's just not that anymore. It's no, just and, like, it, and it, it it never has been so just that. But I think people are starting to really see the change in their lives when everyone's getting more politically motivated. Um, the thing I've talked about for years, especially since Occupy Wall Street, was the fact that everyone needs to become their own journalist. And when I made that video, people were like, I don't have time. But my theory was that you're going to be obligated to because when you share something on your timeline on Facebook or Twitter and someone goes, by the way, that's not exactly right, um, you should think about this, you'll go, oh, I'll remember next time, you realise that everyone has a status online. And it's why... Um, the last couple of years since sort of trying to make a comeback on YouTube, this Creators for Change project that YouTube launched has been such a great timing for me because over 11 years, as the platform has become more commercial by design, and I've become more of an activist, which actually activism is becoming quite trendy these days, mm. so it's now having a comeback. But um, it was a great chance to have my content funded and you know not jeopardise my integrity, do what I wanted to do, but actually upgrade my content and make some really good videos. And the scheme ended up having, I think, 42 people from all these different countries, from Japan to Yemen to Israel to Germany, all in one place in London for this meeting. And we all shared ideas, and it was this sort of microcosm of the world, and you realise that despite the diversity of experiences and ideas, there are these commonalities and you are united 
by the thing of a passion for making video, which actually if we go back 11 years ago when I organised the first YouTube gatherings in the UK as an 18 year old and it was like maybe 20, 30 people, mainly 25 to 30, and I thought I need to grow up a bit. I'm now 31 now and most people are 15, 16. It's really gone the other way. Um, back then, people had all these different interests. Um, you know, Not everyone had the same interest out of those 20, but they were united by sharing experience and you know being human on this empathy platform. Hmm. And I find it's really interesting that although we can see a progression over the 11 years, in some ways it's actually gone full circle or maintained as one circle with this sense of momentum as it becomes more and more integrated in everyday life. Yeah. You sound like a very, very busy man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, right, I mean, we're, we're nudging up against the time limit, but where um, you mean, where can people go to find out more about you? Obviously, YouTube, but do you want to give us a quick plug for your channel? Sure, yeah. So it's youtube.com forward slash miles, M-Y-L-E-S, because it's a name, not a distance, which should be a catchphrase, really. Um, but, uh, should, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I also post on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Miles Dyer, D-Y-E-R, official. Um, and I try and post videos every <laughs> Thursday uh, at 7. Um, this week's video is coming a bit late, and it's on procrastination, <laughs> which uh, is just, you know, it was a part of the art. I thought, you know, I've got to procrastinate to really make this work. <laughs> um, and I'm also on Twitter, um, not so much anymore, but um, that's just at Miles Dyer. And, uh, yeah, I post videos around futurism tech, yeah. about the values that we need as technology evolves, um, mental health and well-being, because it's a very scary world at the moment and we need to take care of ourselves, and then social commentary, like looking at um, the world around us and what we can learn and how do we break the cycle when things go wrong. Right. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you in to talk to us. Uh, I feel like we've learned a lot, Yeah. I think. Let's go off and set up our own channels. Do today. it. Do it. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming and joining us. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, so uh, that's it for this week. We we do this. We do Future File every Friday. So please come and listen to us. Subscribe. Leave us a comment. Get in touch if you want us to cover anything uh, specific. Uh, but yeah, we will see you again next Friday. So thanks very much for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>